Good morning. Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? Do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Least they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy Independence Day. My name is Josh. I'm the family discipleship minister here. It's my privilege to come before you with God's word. And so I would invite you to go ahead and grab a Bible out of the chair in front of you or to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. If I was a better preacher, I would weave themes of liberty and freedom and taxation without representation all throughout this text this morning, but I am not that good. And as most of you know, it is the regular habit here that we would preach book by book and verse by verse um, through the text. And so that's where we land this morning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 12, the passage of scripture that comes next. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do come before you, grateful for your grace and your mercy, grateful for the opportunity to worship, grateful for this team that was just a moment ago behind me, uh, grateful for their leadership and for them setting the stage for us to now dive deep into your word. I pray that you would bless this effort, that you would work in our lives, that you would help us to go out from here, having learned uh, a little bit more godly than we were, Lord, ready to be obedient to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Um, Before we begin to dissect it, let me just remind you a bit about the context in which we're in, the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can visualize Jesus sitting on the side of a hill or on the side of a mountain, and just in front of him are his disciples. And so he's eye to eye with his disciples teaching them. Just behind them is a mixture of Pharisees and townspeople spiritual enough to want to come and to hear a sermon. And so depending on what it is that we're reading in the Sermon on the Mount, I sort of visualize Jesus again eye to eye with his disciples, but from time to time his eyes bounce up and he makes eye contact with the Pharisees. Bottom line, he's addressing problems here in this sermon. Speaking to a bunch of opinionated religious people, here's what he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there was a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So just a few basic observations from those first five verses. In verse 1, we have a command to judge not. A command and a short warning. In verse 2, we have a warning. And in verse 3, we have an illustration that instructs. So let's go uh, with the command first. Beginning in verse 1, judge not. And I would say we have to be careful here because... Uh, if we take those two words, to judge not, and we, we, we think of them comprehensively, so we rip them out of this context, isolate them from all the rest of what Scripture has to say about judgment, then we can do some real, some real damage. Judgment, in some forms, is inevitable, and I think good. Think about it like this. Without judgment, the gospel can't go forth. And so think about this, but also do this. And so this afternoon, look over your fence into your neighbor's yard and judge your neighbor. Judge them as a potentially lost person who needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Walk over there, start a conversation, segue to the gospel, and make sure that they know that God is their maker, that sin is their failure, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that faith and repentance and a turning to Christ is necessary for salvation. And so without judgment, there's no gospel. Without you looking at your neighbor across your fence, the gospel can't go forth. Without you looking at them in judgment. And so Jesus' words here, to judge not, does not mean never judge. Hopefully that's simple enough. We can drive home that point further by looking at verse 5. Eventually, uh, Jesus does instruct his disciples to get back around to their brother and to address the speck that's in their brother's I. Or in verse 6, this reference to hogs and dogs. It's a charge to be discerning, to exercise discernment. We'll look at it in more detail in just a few minutes. Or in verse 15, we can skip right down. Uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them how? By their fruits. And how will we recognize them by their fruits? Without judgment. We can't. And so judge not does not mean never judge. And we know that the scope of what the scripture has to say about judgment is much broader. And so life together, any sort of one anothering, any sort of iron sharpening iron is going to imply and require some forms of judgment. So Jesus isn't forbidding all forms of judgment. What type of judgment is he forbidding? What is this a prohibition against? Let's continue in our text. We'll see if there's some hints. Verse 2, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So we'll come right back to that. Let's look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but, not, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so right there's our hint. This, this is the verse that helps us to understand the type of judgment that Jesus is prohibiting. Judge not in this manner. Judge not in a manner in which you can only see the other person's sin and shortcomings. You can flip over to Luke 18. Luke 18, we get an incredible picture of what this type of judgment looks like and sounds like. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the type of judgment that Jesus is warning us about, placing too much confidence in ourselves and looking down on everyone else around us. So I'll give you a first point for this morning. Point number one, go humbly, be humble. In your relationships with other peoples, in your thoughts about other people, be humble. Look back at verse two. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's a warning. It's a warning against double standards. So the, the, the standards that we hold other people to should be the same standard that we hold ourselves to. We can't judge others according to a certain measure, according to a certain standard, and then turn back around and expect ourselves to be held to a different standard, a, a lesser standard. This, of course, begs the question, to what standard or by what standard should we hold others to? Should we hold ourselves to? And that answer for Christians is God's word. God's word is the only certain rule for faith and obedience. And so think about it like this. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. He is the incarnate word of God, John 1. And so anytime that we run past Jesus, anytime we come back over the top of Jesus and his word with a word of our own, we're legalist. We've become legalist. Here's a really common and subtle way in which that happens in the church. Okay, take, take, take this hypothetical scenario, and so... Say you sit, you sit in church some Sunday morning and you hear a sermon, and the first point of that sermon is to be humble. And so you go away with that application in your mind, that, that principle to be humble in your mind. You go home and you think, what can I do? How can I be more humble? And you realize that um, in your online presence, through your comments on Facebook and other social networking apps, you're stirring up fights, you're stirring up arguments, you're, you're, you're entering into political discussions or other types of discussions that result in argument. So opinions beget opinions, which beget opinions, and, and that's an unhealthy thing. And you realize that pride is creeping in and stress and anxiety. And so in an effort to be more humble, you set that aside and you stop making comments online. And for two or three weeks, you realize that that's a very fruitful thing for you. And so you come back to church and you come back to your Bible study and you give a report of what's going on in your life. And what you say next is incredible. You look, at, you look at this, you know, the ladies in your Bible study or the men in your Bible study and you tell them, listen to what God's doing in my life. Listen, this is what you need to do. You need to stop making comments online. It's been really, really good for me. Do you see what just happened? A practice got elevated to the level of principle. God's word does not teach us anywhere to not make comments online, does it? So the principle is humility. 
We all need to be, hum- uh, to be humble, to walk humbly according to God's word. And we take practices, we take applications in our lives, and we elevate them to the level of principle, and we sit in judgment of everyone around us when they don't obey our word. This is the sort of judgment, this is the sort of legalism that's being condemned here in chapter 12. Friends, go humbly. The word of God is the only certain rule for faith and obedience. This is the measure by which we must measure ourselves and others. Let's look back down at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can I say to my brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in my own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so this week, this is a real story, I was laying on my bed, Um, Jacqueline and I were trying to have a conversation in the bedroom, I don't remember what we were talking about, but it was just a casual conversation, and in the middle of it, I hear, Dad, one of my children, it was Caleb, he's yelling through the house at me, and I just ignore it initially, and we continue our conversation, and it happens again, and I ignore it again. Well, after the fifth time, I scream, Caleb, get in here, Caleb, (coughs) and he doesn't come right away. But eventually, he dis- does come, and I, I, what are you doing, son? Why are you yelling through the house? What's your problem? What do you need? Why are you yelling? You know what he said? I didn't want to get off my bed. <laughs> so, we can, be <laughs> we can be lighthearted and funny about this passage with examples like that. But in reality, the verses are very cutting, Jesus is teaching us that we have blind spots. According to this, I have an incredibly, uh, an incredibly large and disproportionate ability to see the sin and to see the shortcomings in your eyes in comparison to my own life. Uh, I'll illustrate this to you if you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. To me, this is scary stuff. This should strike a bit of fear in our hearts. 2 Samuel Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so this is right after the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ooh lamb. Ooh lamb, ewe lamb? I wasn't a farmer. One little ooh lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse seven, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Sobering. According to this, I have a massive ability to let myself off the hook. 
while holding you to a high moral and ethical standard. You need to know this about me and I I need to know this about you. I will tend to worry about your sin and your shortcomings while ignoring my own. I'm I'm a blind eye doctor. I'm a blind man who thinks he's got the skill and the ability to dig into your faces with tweezers. According to this, I will tend to excuse myself while accusing you. Now, isn't that pleasant? How should we react to this news? Point number one go humbly, be humbled. This is humbling. And so we should go humbly. Verse six. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What in the world does that mean? This is a verse that usually usually we bring this out when somebody's not listening to us, right? Somebody's not listening to me. Somebody's not obeying me. Somebody's not doing exactly what I think they should do. And so I'm, I'm out. I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine anymore, right? Pastor's mad at us. He's done. No more, no more pearls before the swine. Here's what, here's what I think we do with this. Jesus is telling his disciples, as you go out into the world, be discerning. Remember your context. Jesus is on the side of the mountain. He's teaching his disciples, as you go out, be discerning. Second point, be discerning. So in verse 5, be humble in your interactions with each other. Verse 6, be wise and discerning in your interactions with the world. Dogs and pigs in the first century were considered vile, nasty, and unclean, so we're not talking about your $2,000 golden doodle here, different kind of dog. Jacqueline and I, living in Mexico, we would walk every day to language school a couple of miles And there were street dogs all over the place. And if I told you stories about what we saw these dogs doing, we would all just melt with embarrassment. These dogs have no scruples. They're dirty. They're nasty. They're vile. They They will bite your hand off for a bit of food. They run in packs. At times, they attack people. These are gross animals. It's hard for me to say that about dogs. But that's the type of dog that's being referenced here. Reference to pigs in verse 6 is meant to conjure up equally vile thoughts so we can think about the prodigal son when he finally hit rock bottom. Who was he keeping company with? The pigs. In 186 BC, a Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes, he famously invades Jerusalem. He captures the city. And as a way to signify and to solidify his total victory over the Jewish people, he takes pigs into the temple and he slaughters them there. The ultimate desecration to the Jews. So pigs and dogs, bottom line, are dirty. And so to give what is holy and sacred to what is filthy would be unthinkable. Jesus is teaching his disciples that there is a scenario, there is a time, there may be people who are unworthy to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, don't waste your gospel energy. Don't waste your limited resources on the wrong kind of of people exercise discernment so here's what we need to understand as stewards of the gospel as finite people we only have a certain amount of time energy and resources to invest certain capacity for people Jesus is calling us to steward those resources well 
Be wise with your time. Be wise with your energy. Be wise with the gospel. Look for fruitful ministry. If for the umpteenth time somebody rejects the gospel, move on. Free up time and space for new relationships and new friendships where you can share the gospel with new people. Be discerning. Verse 6 is not a license to be judgmental. It's a call to be wise stewards, and that's requires, that requires discernment. Just a note, people aren't hogs or dogs because we judge them as such, label them, and then from that point forward, that, that's what they are. They're, they're, they're hogs and dogs because they have consistently rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've made themselves that. And so there does come a time where we need to exercise discernment, realize that, and potentially move on. A bit of a strange scenario for us to think through, I think. And so I have an application point 2A for you this morning. So be discerning, point two. Point 2A, chuck some pearls, right? And so I'm thinking about indirect and direct objects and who gets the pearls this week and how this applies in our culture and in our city and I realize that I haven't shared the gospel with somebody in a while and so I'm standing in the wrong ditch my guess is that many of you are standing in the wrong ditch and so rather than spend our morning thinking about whether or not somebody is worthy of our time and energy my encouragement would be to waste the gospel on a few people this week right chuck some pearls get out of that ditch and risk the dangers of the other ditch, right? Be discerning. Share the gospel with people. Let's look back at the text in verse 7. I think Jesus knows at this point that he's overwhelmed his disciples. And so we're, we're big fat sinners with splinters in our face. Thanks, Jesus. We're too judgmental of other people. I'm not as faithful to share the gospel as I should be. I need help to be humble and I need help to be discerning. We might not feel like we're any good at relationships with other people based on these two charges. And then comes verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and to the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you... If his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And so, so almost out of nowhere, it feels, we have this incredible promise. Again, I think Jesus knows that he's... He's charged his, with his disciples with some difficult tasks, with some hard ministry, and then he reminds them, in your times of discouragement, in your times of trouble, when you don't know what to do, ask, seek, knock, pursue me. People are difficult. Knowing how difficult earthly relationships will be, and after this hard word of instruction, judge not. Don't cast your pearl before swines. Jesus reminds us to seek him. That's our third point this morning. Seek God. 
In verse 7, we read, ask, seek, and knock. Many have observed there's a, an ascending progression of these verbs. And so we might think of a little girl after service, and she's lost her parents, and so she comes forward, and she asks me, you know, I can't find my mom and dad. Can you help me to find them? And so she asks, and we look around this room. We begin to seek her, moving about, asking others. We still can't find her, and so the intensity of our search picks up, and we begin to work our way out into the halls, and we're knocking on closed doors, and we're seeking until, seeking and knocking until we find the parents. Verse 8, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And there's, there's an apparent reward for those who seek. So most of us know from experience that when we pray, we don't get everything that we asked for, but implied here is that there will be a reception of something. When we ask, when we seek, when we knock, the door will be opened to us. Verse 9, parents, if your child asks you for bread, would you give them a stone? No. Or if your child asks for a fish, would you give them a serpent? I don't hear anything. No, they are, they're just rhetorical. <laughs> no, right? Of course not. If we, if we, and so if we who are evil, it's like Jesus is just so subtle there, right? Just a little quick reminder of the state of things. And so if, if you, disciples, if you, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in heaven if we ask him? And so we who are evil, blind men who aren't aware of our own sin, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more? There it is right there. That's the point that I want you to get. How much more will the Father, how much more will God, how much more will God lavish on us love and gifts? The point of the parable isn't about us. It isn't about gifts and stuff and blessing. The point is that God is bigger and better and more lavish than we are. So seek him. When you're discouraged, when you're hurting, turn your relational energies to God and seek him because he is lavish in his love for us. Verse 12. Our last piece of relationship advice, very quickly. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So verse 12 returns us to the affairs of men with the exhortation to behave towards others in a way that's consistent with how you want them to behave towards you. In other words, treat others the way that you want to be treated, which of course is the golden rule. I worked for a restaurant one time and they decided to improve on this and create the platinum rule, ultimate, the ultimate sign of arrogance. So, and it was a bad rule, dangerous rule in fact. Treat others the way they want to be treated. That was the platinum rule. Okay, we're going to stick with the golden rule this morning. Verse 12 causes us to ask the question, how do I want to be treated? How do I want to be treated? How do you want to be treated? Maybe you want to be left alone. Maybe you want to be treated like a king or a queen. Maybe you want to be respected. Maybe you want to be loved. Maybe you want to be cherished. 
My guess is that everyone in here has slightly different values, and so the way in which you want to be treated, it was going to be subjective. It's going to be a little bit different for each of us. Let me just tell you, if I could be so bold, how you want to be treated. There is a love, there is an affection, there is a privilege that goes far beyond all other earthly loves that we can conjure or imagine up. There is a respect that's greater, a privilege that is grander, love and respect that's far superior to anything that we could imagine, any scenario that we could create. Whether we know it or not, this is how we want to be loved. And this is love. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and given us his son, a propitiation for our sin, as a propitiation for our sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, that is love. How good is that? That in spite of myself, and I do believe this, I was morally and ethically Weak, dead, sick, broken, a scoundrel, a filthy pig, a dog, a man with eye sockets full of lumber. And in this state of nastiness, this state of rebellion, like a Mexican dog running through the street, starving, ready to bite off its owner's hand or its a, a person's hand, he plucked me out of that darkness and by his grace brought me into the light. Friends, that is a gift. Our salvation is a gift. And so if you ask me how I want to, to, to be treated, I would say I want more of that. I want more of God's love, more of God's patience, more of God's grace, more of God's kindness, more of God's mercy and love, more of God's gospel. I didn't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of it, which makes it all the more incredible. He has brought us into his house, promised us a future in his kingdom. He has granted us an eternal destiny, a life of pleasure at his side in his kingdom, and we didn't deserve any of it. That's an incredible way to be treated. That's love. That's love of the highest and grandest order. And so, and so, that's the sort of love that we ought to love each other with. Point number four, love each other. Do we love each other, church? In spite of our differences, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our sin, love each other the way that Christ has loved you. You want to be treated the way that Christ has treated you. You want to be treated the way that God has treated you in Christ. We need to love the way that, lo that God has loved us. I'll finish with this. Look back at verse 11. Did you see the gospel? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts Give good things to those who ask him. The gospel is right there for us. We are reminded of the gospel. If you haven't experienced God's love, look at verse 11. 
And consider again the God of the Bible who has given the very best thing to us. Abba Father, who loves to lavish on us good gifts. And there is no gift greater than Jesus Christ, his son. Evil men that we are, God sees us in our need, loves us, and has lavished on us his son. And so if you don't know that sort of love, Seek him this morning. Ask for it this morning and be found. Let's pray. God, we come before you. I pray humbled by your word, reminded of our flesh, reminded of the brokenness that still exists even for us as believers being made new in your image. Lord, I pray that we would fight, that we would fight for humility, that we would fight for wisdom, that we would pursue it, that we would be discerning, that we would be wise in the way that we deal with others, Lord. I pray that there would be grace, Lord, grace and love and kindness and mercy extended to others towards people who don't know you, Lord, the same kind of grace and patience that you extended to us. I pray that we would extend to others would help us to be a discerning church, a discerning people, committed to others, committed to investing in lost people. I pray that you would help us to be wise and when the time comes to move on. But I pray that we would, in moments of discouragement, when uh, relationships, when friendships break down, Lord, this, this messy, frustrating and beautiful thing that is friendship, that is one anothering together, Lord. When relationships break down, Lord, I pray that we would ask, that we would seek, that we would knock, that we would return to you, that we would direct our racial, relational energies to you. Recharge us, Lord. Re-energize us. And give us the love to love others with, Lord, according to the golden rule. Lord, the way we want to be treated, I pray that we would treat others. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the opportunity to worship. In Christ's name, amen.